expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to this very special APSA Insights series. Today, it's all about consumer goods and a sector which is extremely pressure during lockdowns through quarantine. If you look at today's unemployment numbers, you would think that this was a sector that was about to start booming with unemployment to 23.2% in the second quarter. And I laugh simply because it's an absolute fiction that there has been uh, a collections issue uh, through the lockdown. So this is a sector under incredible, incredible duress. We've got a fabulous panel for you today, uh, led by Isana Cordia. Now, Isana is the Head of Consumer Goods at APSA Corporate and Investment Bank. We've got Portfolio Manager 361 Asset Management, Evan Walker. He is an expert in the retail sector joining us. We've also uh, today got Anthony Thunstrom, who's the Chief Executive of the Fushini Group. Uh, we've got the Finance Director of Fushini Group and also the Head of Marketing from SAB with us today. Uh, Isana, let's start with you. It's on the Cordia from EPSA CIB. Uh, there we are. Ewan um, Tully is the Chief Financial Officer uh, at the Fashini Group. And Evan Walker, I'm sure, will join us once he manages to get his wires connected. Um, it's on the Cordia. Let's start with you, the Head of Consumer Goods and Services at APSA, uh, Corporate and Investment Bank. A broad overview, if you would, of this sector in probably the most trying time, certainly beyond our lifetimes in a century. It is interesting times indeed. So other than saying to you that right now the world is looking a little bit upside down for most of the consumers, what we're trying to do is look at data on a day-to-day basis and try and understand what's really happening out there. Um, People have obviously been in lockdown. They've been constrained from uh, spending behaviors, so they couldn't spend on what they normally spend on. Yet the data is telling us from a, a card acquiring perspective, people are still spending. They're just spending differently. And um, why don't we go to Anthony Thunstrom, the chief executive of the Fushini Group. Anthony, uh, to you this afternoon, Asana talks about the fact that we all stayed away from the shops and part of it was enforced. One gets the sense that people are being trickled back in again, albeit quite slowly uh, once you get through all of the hand wringing and face covers and everything else. Uh, absolutely, Bruce. And I think what's uh, fascinating is also um, how it's affecting different regions of the country, different types of shopping malls very differently. Um, if you look at your major super regional malls across the country, particularly those that might have had an exposure to tourism, the VNA in Cape Town, Sandton City, etc., footfall still well done. Um, obviously, a lot better than during the full lockdown, um, but well done at normal levels and. You'd actually be forgiven if you went to some of the more convenience uh, rural shopping malls. Um, you'd, you'd almost think there was no coronavirus that had never hit. You know, in some cases, um, some of those malls footfalls actually up on pre-coronavirus uh, levels. Uh, how's this translating then to the bottom line? We look at the retail results across the board, and there's a, a huge amount of pressure, not only here, but in economies across the globe. And you've had that experience as well. Oh, yeah. No, thanks, Bruce. Um it's been it's been quite tough you know we lost obviously a whole month of sales uh, in april and not only in south africa for tfg but also australia and the uk who obviously were also in lockdown so bottom line under pressure 
uh, margins under pressure. But, uh, you know, South Africa is a very resilient um, economy and we've seen some uptick uh, in the past few months, but certainly um, April was a significant, um, has had a significant impact on our performance. So yeah, first half definitely That's under pressure of 2020. You wouldn't be a believer in today's jobs numbers, not for a moment, at 23.2% unemployment in the second quarter. Um, it's clearly a no. issue. I mean, it's not reflecting the reality. No, 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 far from reality, for sure. Yeah, and I think the impact of COVID is still to be felt, a full impact of COVID and the impact on employment. I mean, it's a matter of time, yeah. Uh, Vaughan, Marketing Director at SAB. I mean, there was a moment where I was wondering whether or not my tap water was going to start tasting of castle lager, if you're going to pour it all down the drains and feed it into the water system, I was living in hope um, that you would have to do that and have to destroy millions of litres of beer, but you didn't. Um, give me a perspective, please, as one of South Africa's most consumed products, just how you guys coped. Um, of course, our product is built on the premise of sociability. Um, so it was incredibly challenging, um, uh, particularly for our for our on-premise uh, retailers and traders, the restaurants, the hospitality industry, the, the sporting industry. Um, so an immensely challenging time for our business. Um, but beer always proves to be quite resilient. So as as we've uh, resumed trading, uh, we've seen uh, we've seen really good good volumes. Um, I think to Asana's point earlier, definitely some shifts in behaviour. I think the increase of the at home occasion is a is a critical one for us to consider in in how that that plays out. Um, and also people making uh, decisions based on value. And uh, we we are positioned in the value segment of the market. Uh, we have a broad portfolio, but uh, essentially we're we're in the value segment, uh, which which seems to be quite robust. I mean, are we going to see the consumption of beer change fundamentally? Or going on a trip in Europe and visiting Compania uh, Pirabushka and many other of the old SAB Miller um, sites and going to Pilsner or Quell and many others and getting a very clear sense that in Eastern Europe there was a very clear in-home market and that was you know, beer sold in two-liter PETs versus the on-premise uh, on consumption um, where people would you know, hold the, the bottles like you guys always do with the labels facing out showing everybody what it is that you're drinking where you go and show off what your favorite brew is are we going to see a fundamental shift um, towards more of that kind of consumption i do think in the short term due to the financial pressures and the fear of of going out and socializing that you would you would definitely see people looking for for really good value um, and there being less opportunities to badge, like you said, uh, with, with those labels. But will we see fundamental shifts in, in behavior? Um, I don't, I don't believe so. We've seen, uh, the benefit of being part of a, a global organization is that we can learn from other markets who are slightly ahead of us in their battle against the pandemic. And, um, and, and I don't believe there'll be fundamental shifts in, in categories. Um, you would, however, see, you know, shifts to value. There's definitely a value seeking behavior. Uh, and talk to me then about restrictions on the sale of alcohol, or the transportation of alcohol. At one point where Becky Taylor is stopping motorists on the side of the road and ripping cases of beer out of car boots and stuff, and your trucks would have been restricted in terms of their ability to deliver. Now we can do uh, purchases in bottle stores Monday to Friday, not allowed over the weekends, but on-premise uh, consumption is allowed. Uh, just give me a sense of how the market dynamics are affecting you right now. 
Yes, I think that, that fundamentally there's going to be an increased responsibility between the private sector and the public sector. Um, that is something that we um, that we really strive for and aim for to work with with government. And I also find that there's a heightened need for true corporate sociability, not just with our corporate brand, but also with our with our consumer brands, so that they can play a meaningful an impactful role in, in society. And I think those are were two, of, um, two of my bigger insights. Mm. Take me through, Ashley, if you would, the shift of online. When we, we look at the trends that we certainly see in the grocery market and talking to the CEOs of, of ShopRite and the pick and pay and the Woolworths, um, the basket size has increased, the, visitor, the visits decreased and people were very selective in the way they went and bought their groceries. Did that play out also in the world of clothing retail? Yeah, very much, Bruce. I think, you know, the reality is that uh, e-commerce trend had actually left the station quite a long time before uh, COVID hit us. I just think most people in South Africa haven't really seen it. Um, The percentages were relatively small as a total contribution. Um, But again, picking on Vaughan's point, when you're exposed to global trends, as we are through our offshore businesses in Australia and the UK, you could kind of see which way it was going in any event. Um, when COVID hit, you'll remember the first month we couldn't even uh, fulfill from an e-commerce perspective. It was amazing. People were still ordering and quite happy to wait for who knows how long, four, six, eight weeks at the time. Nobody knew when you could actually start shipping. Um, we went from, to kind of give a, a sense of scale in South Africa, at the beginning of our last financial year, e-commerce was 1% of our turnover. Uh, the end of the year, it had grown 100%, so we got to 2%. Um, we're currently running between 5 and 6%, and our Australian business pretty much doubled um, over the lockdown period as well. We saw actually both basket sizes increase, but also the number of visits increased dramatically. And I guess that's a reflection of people sitting at home, um, generally not going out as much as they used to and spending more time, I guess, uh, shopping online. So uh, a fundamental shift um, was happening anyway. It's been accelerated, you know, based on our own internal timeframes by at least three years. Um, and I think, you know, online shopping is a learned thing. Once you've realized you can use your credit card details, um, it's generally pretty safe. You generally get your goods within a day or two. And you can return them if you don't like what you get. It's very hard to unlearn that. So I think it's um, it's just moved us forward a number of years. Now, when you said you're forward three years, Satya Nadella, the chief executive of Microsoft, was saying that they saw two years of digital innovation in two months. Um, and, and I think that's been the global phenomenon, that global learning that we have seen uh, play out as well. When it comes to e-commerce and as a percentage of sales, you go, it goes from 1% to 2%. You go, well, that's not very much, but that's a 100% increase for you. <laughs> I mean, suddenly you've got a cope with this huge new demand. It may not seem very much from the outside, but paint a picture for me, please, as to what it takes to scale up that quickly from an internal perspective. Oh, yeah, Bruce, um, very true. I mean, as a percent of sales, as you say, looks small, but um, we've actually now are running at close to five seven percent online sales and growing Uh, internally obviously tfg was very well placed um, to take advantage of this growth because i think for the past three four years we've invested significantly uh, on our online platforms my tfg world and apps and and and, uh, internet shopping for all our brands so uh, actually and our logistics as well over the years we had perfected them so it was a very welcome opportunity um, to have this sale uh, increase uh, so significantly and what it's done actually we for a year or two we ran online um, at a loss 
and with the, and we just needed the volume and this volume has obviously helped my bottom line and certainly um we're definitely breaking even for most brands and even more profitable uh, for some brands for sure so it's been quite a welcome and tfg do you see for it. A, a seminal moment as as a moment that we don't go back that, as Anthony was just saying a moment ago, people get a taste. It's a bit like that first sip of Kraftful Lager. Once you've had the first sip, you've got to finish the rest. Um, online shopping. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. And obviously, remember, you're dealing, we see it with actually the brands that um, um, support the, the younger and uh, generations uh, online sales have just shot up to 300 percent for those brands and i don't see it going back in any way actually see it escalating you know uh, continually and as we continue investing definitely uh, on online for sure evan walker there you are um as as we came to you um you were glugging from a bottle and i was hoping that it would be a beer bottle um but it's not um from your perspective what has happened in the consumer goods sector across the uh, across the, the retail sector in South Africa and how have we held up worldwide over over the last six to eight months or so in this really weird time that we're all living through? It's been a number of different issues here. I mean, obviously, we know uh, anecdotally and also know through the reported numbers that the food retailers have done exceptionally well. I mean, everyone's rushing to Woolies Food and even ShopRite Food, etc., to to procure what they would have been elsewhere eating out. And uh, so there has been a change in consumption patterns. Um, I think those will begin to normalize. I mean, in the Western Cape, we're seeing it normalizing quite fast. So I think countrywide, it will begin to normalize. But certainly, we've seen you know a big move to additional home consumption. Uh, which has obviously propelled these food retailers into into good levels of growth. Uh, and and we're, the, the fundamental shifts that we're seeing, you've been part of the discussion, but just this huge line, how big a change is this in South Africa's retail landscape? Bruce, I think it's a very big change. I mean, it's a change for every single participant in these categories. I mean, obviously, for all the retailers, it's a big change. Um, I mean, it's a big change of thinking from a consumer point of view, but certainly from a retail perspective, I mean, it requires a lot from the retailer and, and the consumer's changing dramatically, I mean, globally. I mean, currently there's two schools of thought. I mean, the one school of thought says that with inflation, uh, sorry, with interest rates so low, we're going to start seeing inflation climb and this is going to be good for retailers generally across the globe. And the other school of thought says, well, we're going more and more online. People are going to be pricing way more aggressively. And this is going to be very deflationary and cause uh, quite a big hiccup to consumer growth or to retailer gross margins going forward. So there's two big schools of thought out there. I mean, we sat with the, we sit with the latter one. I mean, we think this whole online process, people going more and more online is going to drive prices down. We think it's going to be a deflationary uh, for retailers generally over the next three to five years. And obviously what we've seen in COVID now uh, being reported from most of the wholesale industries around the world, funny enough, is an acceleration to where they thought they would be from an online perspective, two, three, four. In some cases, some companies say they were, they thought they'd only be in this position five years from now. So it's a dramatic shift, Bruce. I see, Bongi, where you're nodding. Um, is this the sort of stuff that makes your blood run cold? Does this scare you, a deflationary environment in, in retail? It's... It, it's really quite something quite scary to navigate look it, it is bruce but um again we've seen the macros uh, over the years and tfg continually has produced um the deflationary um, 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 uh, sales uh, year on year and uh, we continue on that drive as we saw the consumer was under pressure price points and had to come down and through a lot of um, um, um initiatives internally through our 
local manufacturing, a base, a sourcing locally, working with a local suppliers uh, to deliver a, a product in store on time, quick response, a large proportion of our merchandise is on a quick response basis. So that has allowed us to maintain gross margins. If you see our gross margins over the past two, three years, uh, they've just remained quite stable uh, in, in some brands actually even growing because of all the initiatives uh, we've done um, uh, internally on the, on, on the supply chain side, especially. Yeah. yeah. And see, I mean, everyone seems to suggest just be shutting down shops, you're going to be uh, certainly reducing your floor space, you're going to be going for smaller formats, you're going to be fundamentally altering the way in which you look and feel into the future. Just going back to Evan's point on the two schools of thought, um, again, just to share some of our thinking around that, I think in terms of the pure play guys and the pure online players, um, I think um, the latter theory holds water and it is a bit of a race to the bottom. Everyone's competing with the same stuff. To the extent that you've got strong brands, though, if you kind of think of global brands like Nike, Adidas, uh, their margins, when they shift online, if anything gets stronger, they don't get weaker. Um, that's what Bongiwe is referring to in our own experience in South Africa. We don't sell off price, we sell pretty much um, full price. So I think you've got two different models that depends where you play there. And then, you know, going to retail space, again, I think we've got a slightly different view. Um, it's not actually about e-commerce per se. It's really about an omni-channel experience. It's that blend of e-commerce and stores. The stores end up being your showrooms. They end up, certainly in South Africa, being where it's easiest to return your product um, if you're not happy with it. We've got uh, the best part of 3,000 delivery or collection points situated around the country. Somebody said the other day we've got more branches in the post office. Um, and that's, I guess, partly true. What we see more and more is people actually fulfilling their online orders from our stores. We've got over 500 of our South African stores already connected to a central online database where you don't actually have to ship from a, a DC. It actually just comes out of store stock and people can either go into the store and collect in the store or it can be routed by algorithms from the store that's closest to the consumer. So I think it's going to be at the end of the two. Um, and certainly, again, from a TFG perspective, we've got lots of brands that we haven't even fully rolled out yet. So I think, if anything, providing we get the right rentals, um, we'll probably continue to expand or be at This idea that we're going to see an expansion in retail is almost counterintuitive. But I suppose with Edcon downsizing very dramatically and Edcon sale of Edgars and the sale of Jet, the dynamics in this industry are going to change quite fundamentally. Bruce, yeah, I mean, you know, we've been we've been negative the sector for well well over five, six years now on the premise that there's just been too many space, too much space rollout and not enough consolidation. So for the first time and thanks to the guys at Fashini, I mean I think this is a great acquisition for them. Uh, I think it does consolidate the, the sector. I think it starts to do what should have been done in a number of years ago in terms of the number of players in this in the in the sector overall and the consolidation of, of the number of formats. So I think for the first time now, from an industry perspective, we've seen the retailers going the right way. Uh, I think more so on the apparel side than on the food side. I still get, I'm still nervous about the amount of space that's been rolled out on the food side. But even there, we're starting to see, you know, the, the guys battling. I mean, we know that, uh, you know, the, the 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 likes of game and certain those formats are just not successful. Uh, I mean, the macros of the world are coming under pressure. So even there, I think over time now, and a lot of the cash and carry space is going to consolidate quite dramatically over the next three to five years as the retailers play harder in that space. So I think from an industry perspective now, we're seeing the right things. I mean, you know, this is this is what we should be seeing from an industry. We go through these long, dramatic cycles. 
Uh, these cycles are very pronounced. They're good for a, a number of years. I mean, we've covered this space for 25 and we saw 15 very good years. Um, but like any industry, people get overexcited and overinvest. And now we need that consolidation, which is happening. Uh, so this is the start of a good process, I mean, for the retailers. Uh, and we need to see more of it. So unfortunately, we need to see more consolidation in this space. And we need to see, unfortunately, the weaker players exit. Um, and that's, that's still going to happen. But it does create an opportunity, doesn't it, Anthony? I mean, one talks to the likes of G.T. Pereira and Laurie Dipnard and Paul Harris about what the most difficult time in their 40 years in business was. Surely 1987 must have been the hardest time in South African history as South Africa went into a debt default and was two years after the Rubicon speech and South Africa was effectively in a civil war and there were bombs going off and we were uh, fighting the war in Angola that we should never have got involved in and couldn't afford and it was an absolute shambles. And their eyes light up. They said that was the best time when Barclays had gone and there was the opportunity to consolidate in financial services and it gave them a full suite. You're sitting in a position now where Edcon has failed, but you've sat on the sidelines and gone, thank you very much. We'll take you know, nearly 400 jet stores. Now, Bruce, you couldn't have thought it up better. I mean, you go back, we actually looked at Jet in a lot of detail together with actually Edgar's and the whole of Edcon about five years ago. I just joined the group. Uh, we were approached by the shareholders at that stage um, proactively to possibly do a deal. And so, yeah, it, you know, frankly, there were a number of issues with the business, uh, the least of which was um, not the purchase price. You know, to have bought Jet five years ago, you would have, you know, shelled out somewhere between seven and eight billion rand. Um, we managed to do a deal at, you know, well below half a billion rand, pretty much the same business. That opportunity can only come at a time like this. Um, I think if you go back, you know, we, as a as a group, we also embarked on capital raise. Um, we announced that at our results presentation. Part of it was to make sure that we could, you know, withstand the choppy waters ahead. No one's got a crystal ball. But the other big part of it was uh, the consolidation that Evan spoke about. We didn't see, you know, we can't predict what will fall over when, but it's going to happen in retail right around the world. There are going to be fewer players in 12 months' time than there are now. We just wanted to get in a position where actually you can act on good opportunities if you find them. So, yes, I think a unique opportunity. Tough at the time, but, uh, yeah, once in a lifetime. Uh, Isan, I mean, what is your sort of crystal ball view of... Uh, of this consumer goods sector. I mean, the opportunities present themselves. One would regularly talk to Brian Joffe when he was at Bidvest. And, um, you know, the moment somebody uh, was coughing, Brian Joffe would be around knocking on the door saying, hello, you're feeling all right? Um, should, we, should, we, should we talk business? Uh, do you see more consolidation coming in the South African consumer goods sector? Um, I would think there should be more consolidation. I think um, the consumers in South Africa is just... Um, exposed to a lot of choice at the moment um, and it makes I, I know it sounds funny but consumers actually want less choice um, a lot of what's driving their behavior I think is becoming more about simplification um, simplifying their lifestyles if new trends emerge work from home what are they going to wear are they going to shop where they used to shop how are they going to eat where they're going to spend their money so I definitely think more consolidation is very likely and um, I'm not sure about how that consolidation would because traditionally we have been dominated by big retailers. I see a lot of small um, retailers launch line and over time they, they will start eating into the, the pockets of the bigger retailers, especially in certain categories like clothing. 
other um, categories like food, I think you're going to be, it's just different. People need to eat. doesn't matter when it's, it's almost the same as alcohol. You know, people drink, whether it goes good or bad, people drink, unless the government stops them from drinking, of course. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I think more consolidation. I think um, changing behaviors. Um, how is retailers going to adapt their models to quickly respond to the consumer's needs um, and be more nimble and quick? And I agree with Anthony in that it's probably an omni-channel strategy, but um, also just more flexible. And I think there's opportunity in bringing more from the, uh, the value chain closer to home. The value chain... Um, means more um, manufacturing here in South Africa. That's an opportunity we need to look into and, and capitalize on for our own economy. That's such an interesting thought uh, there. I mean, uh, Anthony, is that the plan? Because we saw uh, Grant Patterson um, used, a, you know, got rid of a lot of the big brands, for example, within Edgar's, um, and did a lot of manufacturing at home, and uh, that was devastating for those manufacturers on the lockdown, as he told them he couldn't pay bills anymore. Um, but the opportunity exists. Global supply chains have been so massively disrupted. Suddenly, this idea of deglobalization begins to take hold. Do you see that happening? Yeah, Bruce, we'd already, funny enough, we'd already been heading down that route for the last five years in South Africa. Um, and the reason for that was largely pure economics. Um, your lead times to manufacturing through, as long as you've got, you know, really world-class facilities, the right technology, the right data, uh, coming out of your, your sales system and you know, you know, what you should be manufacturing to restock. Um, yeah, we were looking at 40, 42 day lead times in South Africa versus 150 to 170, 180 days out of the Far East. Um, your net result is you're taking far less fashion risk if you manufacture locally. Um, you can make your decisions based on real time data. Um, and we were getting a better gross margin as a result. With COVID, it's become, you know, absolutely critically important. Um, I don't think there's a single retailer in the world who can forecast December or January sales with any degree of accuracy. Now, we just, you know, really don't know where the consumer is going to be. We don't know if the virus comes back again, the second, third wave, but there are just too many variables out there. Um, if you don't localize, if you don't have a vertical supply chain, the reality is you're having to take big bets off of your out. And um, that wasn't sensible before COVID. It's certainly, yeah, it's not sensible now. So, you know, we'd, we'd upped our local manufacturing by 30, 40% over the last year. Um, Pre-COVID, we were going to double our local manufacturing over the next five years. That probably accelerates to two or three years. Uh, absolutely, I think, we're right to That's huge. And also it has changed. I mean, uh, Robbie Brosen calls, you know, pajama bottoms, schluffing pants. I mean, you have no idea whether I'm even wearing trousers at the moment, courtesy of the, the wonders of the Zoom experience. Yes, I'm as I have got bigger. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but the practice has changed. I mean, we haven't needed to upgrade wardrobes. We haven't needed to go and shop in the same way as we shopped previously. People uh, like Evan Walker are wearing T-shirts in meetings, for goodness sake. I mean, you know, this is an asset manager. Um, the world has changed fundamentally. Um, this, this challenge of this world that, I mean, yeah, I'm sure some point in 2021, we, we go out and buy a new suit and get seen in public again. But how has that shifted and that changed? Fundamentally, Bruce, I think in the short term, you're 100% right, there's been a massive shift towards casual, and uh, towards anything to do with uh, work from home, be it furniture, decorating your house, home technology, and a massive shift, I think, towards, I mean, it was already evident before COVID, but an accelerated shift towards anything with health and wellness, 
running gear, yoga mats, uh, gym equipment, weights, etc. As a matter of fact, weights sold out in South Africa. You couldn't uh, buy a set of uh, dumbbells for local money over the last couple of months. So I think certainly for as long as um, it's probably not forever. I mean, you probably went the world probably went through a similar um, process of not wearing suits and dressing up over I guess two world wars. Eventually, you get back to some form of normality, but that uh, sense of normality could be I don't know twelve, twenty-four months from now. Uh, so yeah, much more casual. And the other point that was mentioned earlier on by Vaughan was around value. I think um, as economies, and particularly in South Africa, as um, the economic reality bites, there's definitely a shift towards value for money. Um, that doesn't mean cheap, it just means value for money right across all the LSMs. Um, and I think that's becoming more evident um, as each month goes on. Well, Crazy, when we talk about supply chains and we talk about beer, I mean, beer is, uh, by certainly old SAB standards, very much a, a local product. People uh, have a huge affinity for their local beer brands. And there have been a couple of really successful global brands. I mean, Budweiser, which comes out of your parent, AB InBev, uh, Stable has been very good. Stella Artois is one. There's the Heineken and the Carlsbergs of the world that have transcended the borders. But when you look across the African continent, where you have a very substantial footprint, where you are uh, one of the biggest brewers on this continent, beer is local. How does the beer market change in this environment? Bruce, um, we, we've been um, using local materials in our, in our beer for more than five decades. We have a thriving hop industry and barley, barley industry, uh, glass manufacturing. Um, in fact, for our local brands, 90, more than 95% of our ingredients are procured locally. Um, so that, that is really exciting. Um, we also have opportunities to brew some of these imported brands here because we have the right technology and, and breweries to do that. And then further along our value chain, um, we also procure our you know, merchandise and point of sale materials. Uh, more and more that is being procured locally, just as part of this, this commitment that we have to, to growing South Africa. I think during the alcohol ban, I think it was, it, it was quite stark to see how, just how deep that supply chain is into South Africa. And we're, we're very proud of that supply chain. And, uh, and hopefully we can continue to maintain it far into the future. Yeah, and it's, it's absolutely critical that you do. I mean, because the you know, global sense of the globe has, has also changed very, very strongly as well. Isana, in terms of payment, um, and, and is there been a big shift in payment systems? There's some places where, you know, you take out a banknote and, and people recoil as if you've just coughed in their direction. There's a, a reluctance to deal with cash. Cash is seen as this magnificent transmission mechanism for, for the coronavirus. Have you seen a shift in payment mechanisms? Is there more of a, a digital change? I think definitely we've seen reduction in cash, um, but it could also be, be because of the items that was predominantly um, used to buy cash with like alcohol and cigarettes were also restricted. So over this time, cash the cash in the cycle reduced significantly. But because of the trading conditions predominantly, I don't think cash is going to go away. I don't think um, for the lower LSM market, it's still the predominant um, um, payment mechanism. However, the banks are obviously all part of uh, um, work streams where we try and see how we displace cash somewhat and bring in different payment mechanism um, other than card also that could work and make people a, um, a currency available for people to trade in because cash is just dangerous in so many ways. Um, and if the virus is one of them, you know, we got to face that. Yeah, at least the virus doesn't take your money away. We're not yet.
yet anyway. It hasn't morphed to that extent. Um, Evan, we've seen the shift to digital in, in so many interesting ways. And um, South Africa has been very, very slow in terms of its adoption of online shopping. And earlier, uh, Anthony Borgiwa were just telling us about the, the massive escalations they've seen from a very low base in terms of the uh, evolution of online purchasing and online transacting. I suppose the company that stole the show um, over the last six months has been ShopRite. They're, they're 60 offering, um, while minuscule in their world, is evidence as to what can happen when you get it right and how that when you serve your customers in a way that is intuitive and simple and easy, um, that they will come along for the ride. Yep, there's no doubt. I mean, they have started the show there a little bit. I mean, it's uh, it's not available in all areas yet, Bruce, but I mean, certainly for the guys that can use it, I mean, it's been a successful product. I mean, I've got to hand it to them and they seem to have got their logistics right, which we've spoken about earlier is obviously the tough part especially in food. I mean, we, we can have limited assortments and people are obviously chopping and changing and uh, you've got to have the, you know, the, 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 all the fresh produce on the shelf. So, they, I mean, they have, they have seemed to have got this right. Uh, you know, it was, it was quite a, um, you know, it was quite a robust sort of performance from them and especially to go out with this sort of 60-minute offering. I mean, this was, it was quite, I'm sure it was quite challenging for them to get it right, but they, they certainly seem to have got it right. I mean, uh, the feedback has been very positive, I mean, from everyone that's used it. I mean, I've used it, uh, but it seems to have been very, very positive. So, you know, I've got to hand it to them. They seem to have jumped ahead of their competitors in this space, um, you know, and we'll see if they can maintain that. I certainly think they've put the impetus in place to do such a thing. What about the challenge for Anthony and Bongiwe? How do they manage this better into the future? Because the world is certainly moving that way. Challenges for them are going to be store-related challenges, not so much online challenges. I mean, obviously, they can sort out the logistics around you know, their reverse logistics, people wrong-sizing, etc. I mean, I think they can get that right. And as Anthony rightly said, I mean, he's got you know a couple of stores out there, a couple of thousand stores in which he, he's effectively got a warehouse. So, you know, I think the challenge for Anthony and, and for the Fashini Group and apparel retailers going forward in the in what's going to be quite a different landscape is actually getting people back into the stores because without getting people back into the stores, you don't want to have 3,000 stores, okay, sitting idle all day. So, you know, I think they're going to have to be innovative. I think they're going to have to offer reward mechanisms to get people back into stores. Um, I think it's going to have to be an experience. Service levels are going to have to improve in-store. So I certainly think there's going to be a number of issues that they're going to have to look at very carefully to ensure that their store bases over time are just not redundant. I mean, and that's probably going to be a difficult exercise for a lot of retailers around the world is to ensure that their stores are no longer redundant to the consumer. And it's such an important point, Anthony and Bongi. Well, I don't know who wants to pick up on that, but the, the service issue is one that South Africans, I think, are born because, and I increasingly have this issue as we tear our hair out when you go into a retail environment. Um, and you, you, you met with either a blank stare or somebody who's not been adequately trained or somebody who doesn't really have a clue um, on, on what, your, what your needs are. Um, if you're going to turn the store into the experience and into literally the shop front where I can go and experience what you have to offer so that when I go home, I know that a, you know, my size is my size and I can go across multiple brands and get an appropriate size. How are you going to evolve? It's a great opportunity and a hell of a, a mountain to climb. Uh, look, we see it nail on the head. It's, um, particularly in South Africa, it's tough. I mean, the turnover in the retail sector, store staff, is incredibly high in South Africa. You're looking at um, you know, well in excess of 25% a year. 
And so there's a challenge around getting people to know the product, know the sizing, uh, be really committed. I think one of the things we've uh, picked up again over the last 18 months, we've been rolling out a lot of digital training. Um, all of our staff can actually um, access the full suite of training specific to the brand that they work in. It can be done on their smartphone. They don't even need to use their own data. We've got reverse billing arrangements with the major networks. Uh, so they can either train in downtime, you know, over a lunch break, they can train at home. We've certainly seen a noticeable improvement in terms of their performance and customer satisfaction, but it still is a, it is a big challenge going forward. Um, one of the things, again, we picked up from our offshore operations, which we're trying at the moment, is really bringing in effective incentive schemes that reward um, store staff for doing the right things. Um, and it seems like a very obvious uh, kind of model. Um, very few people have managed to get it right, particularly in South Africa. Um, it's got to be very, very nuanced and targeted. Um, we're in fairly advanced stages of testing a couple of mechanisms at the moment. And I think that over time, um, yeah, that will certainly help. I think just going back to Evan's point, though, around um, the challenge on scores, I think um, he's 100% right. If you try and balance the, the scores and the online, it is kind of a touch and accelerator type model. You've got to get that balance right. Um, we do realistically believe that there's room for both, but it's, it's getting um, the kind of pace of change or the shift um, manageable. Uh, we're lucky in South Africa, most of our leases are pretty short. Our average lease term um, to terms about two and a half years, matter of fact, slightly less now. 2.3, 2.4 years. So we've got a lot of flexibility around it, um, but it is critical to get the balance right. And the key, I think, in terms of the shopping malls is you've actually got to build your brands. You've got to have the strongest brands when you go into a shopping mall in whatever category you're you selling, you know, whether it's jewelry, homewares, men's apparel, sports gear, whatever it is. Um, particularly at the moment, you don't want to be brand number two, three, or four. You want to be brand number one or two in the customer's eyes. If you can get that piece right, and that unfortunately takes years of investment, but if you get that piece right, uh, the chances are you'll end up being more. Well, give me consumer health, um, and you see it, I think, on a, on a daily basis in terms of the way spending is happening, the mechanisms people are using, whether they're extending credit, whether they're struggling to pay the answers. Paint a picture for me, please, Bongiwe, on consumer health, if you will. Uh, certainly. I mean, again, um, COVID is showing a lot of things that were already uh, in the system. You know, as I said, the macros were already under pressure globally as well. So over the years, TFG, we've just reduced um, our credit offering uh, to customers. Our acceptance rates used to run at about 56%, say, three years ago. Over the past um, few years, we've much drop them down year on year. Last year, we, acceptance rates were 36%. This year, we've brought them right down to even single digits, you know, because again, uh, the consumer was under pressure. And also, uh, Bruce, uh, I must also add, uh, the cash growth in our stores has continu continually increased. So we have not really been under pressure to offer um, credit uh, to boost uh, our sales. But having said that, yeah, it has an impact on sales and um, we have cut it down significantly. And then collections as well, uh, these active mechanisms that we've done to entice the customers uh, to pay. You know, just to also paint the picture for you, pre-COVID, 90% uh, of our store customers paid in stores, so physically paid in stores. And we encourage that because obviously it provides an opportunity to on-sell to the customer. 
And when COVID hit, we had to actively look at digital platforms, working with the likes of the APSAs to encourage and a lot of other service providers to encourage the customers to pay a digitally and um, using digital, digital means. And also work with food retailers that were open through um, various partnerships um, uh, with uh, things that we adopted. So yeah, um, um, uh, we sit today with provisions as well. Also, IFRS 9 came into effect which again um, placed a lot of emphasis on providing for debt uh, upfront. So it requires you that when you sign up credit, in immediately you then raise a provision based on uh, the health of what you think the health of that customer um, is in terms of uh, repaying the debt, the risk is. So all of those factors made us over the years start reducing our reliance on credit sales and encourage and reward uh, cash payments and and obviously uh, uh, lay buys and, um, and 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 customers to actively pay their accounts and keep them uh, current. But definitely, definitely under pressure. You've seen the results from a lot of banks uh, in the past few months. A lot of bad debts, right? Of increasing provisions, and I think that's not going to change uh, for a while. And uh, um, um, the, the reality of the times. Uh, Brent has a question for you, Bongi. We're saying, do you foresee your business increasing investment in e-commerce? platforms. I think that's inevitable, isn't it? Inevitable. Like I said, we were spending, uh, just to give you some color in terms of numbers, year on year, we've spent at least a billion, 1.2 billion in capex, even in a downward cycle, you know, because we knew uh, that um, a lot of that um, uh, investment will come to bear and help us in future, as we knew that it's a matter of time. We see that in our international businesses that uh, e-commerce had a, a critical role to play and the uh, online was growing uh, significantly uh, uh, overseas. So we've invested throughout the cycle. We'll continue to invest. A lot of our CapEx, 70, 75% year on year has been on an expansionary type of CapEx. Um, e-com platforms, and I think we'll continue uh, to enhance. And that's what has helped us, to be quite honest, um, at, in times like this, that we're able to switch on. Uh, we're ready, we're, we're ready to, to handle um, the demand on online um, uh, platforms in times like this. So certainly we'll spend more, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, Evan Walker, delivery was a nightmare at the beginning of lockdown. Suddenly there was this huge surge in demand and everyone with a, with a mobile, and, and, and a skadonk of a car suddenly turned into delivery person and you would see people going through the streets and going and dropping off boxes of people's houses. And it was a, a really great example, I guess, of how adaptable people are in a time of crisis. One wonders just how well we've actually coped. I mean, is there any data to back it up, Evan? Or Isana, if you can contribute on that? Yeah, Bruce, I don't want to use my own experiences on coping because they haven't been good ones. Uh, um, you know, and uh, <laughs> well, the, the big, the big mammoth. <laughs> Hey, do you, you don't want to hear mine, Bruce, because the, the reverse logistics of all my uh, experiences have been horrendous. So we don't even want to go down that road. And uh, we're not even talking about the big mammoth, the big the big online delivery company in this country. Uh, we really does struggle with the reverse logistics. Trying to send something back is virtually impossible. So, yeah, I mean, it's, Bruce, I, I, think, I think it is evolving. I mean, there's no doubt we, there was a flurry. Uh, every uh, Uber driver, every scooter was used in the in the in the mechanisms up front. I think guys will sort it out. I mean, I don't think that's the big issue. I think you know we will get that sorted. For a lot of people in a lot of places, obviously, just drop offs and times. And uh, you know, every time I schedule a time, I'm never there. I mean, when it arrives, I'm never at home, and uh, and no one's there to accept it. So it's a little frustrating. But I mean, if you are there, 
all the time or all night, then it's probably a little easier. But yeah, I think I think it's going to work out over time. But these these there's a lot of a lot of nuances to this online that still needs to be sorted out and. Uh, uh, and it's a, just a mammoth, mammoth discovery for most retailers. I think I spotted the problem, Evan. I'm not sure it's the retailers. Um, it's not. It could be, <laughs> just, it could be I mean, my IT I'm, skills, Bruce. <laughs> you, you concur with, with Evan's analysis you know, in terms of the reverse logistics. And this idea of reverse logistics is really important because you're going to be reluctant to buy online if the return process is difficult. And there are countries which are far more evolved than we are in terms of delivery and the returns. What, what, what's the researcher telling you about South Africa, Sana? Yeah, no, I agree. I think, but uh, return logistics is one thing. I think to, first to get your customer to just trust the system enough so that they become a, a, a comeback customer every month. I think that's where data is going to play a big role. Um, Bruce, because I bet you when you go to Woolworths every month or every week, in your case, maybe every day, you buy the same uh, items over and over. Now, imagine your retailer of choice starts getting your behavior correct. And they do because they have loyalty cards, right? So they can see this is Bruce. He buys bananas every Saturday together with his milks and his <laughs> eggs and I don't know, whatever caviar or fancy stuff you like then you can start having a predictive model and say, this is your shopping cart. Um, can Do you want to change something? This is your normal delivery slot. Are you happy with this? Can we deliver for you? So I think that is the kind of things retailers, especially in the food and the more uh, consumable um, places need to start thinking about how can they start um, adjusting their models to predictively serve their customers as well and not just be a responsive um, retailer. In the clothing space, I think it's more about understanding um, who your retail, who your client is, getting the sizing right and exactly what you say. If it doesn't work, have your logistics set up so it's easy to turn. I've actually had opposite um, experiences than even I find very good <laughs> return um, experiences with big retailers. So I think, you know, it's just about getting the logistics right. I think partnerships is going to be very important. And I think in South Africa, retailers tend not to want to partner with their own kind. But when it comes to sharing logistics and sharing that experience, there is a, there is a, there is a big benefit than learning to learn from each other's mistakes, um, leverage each other's already systems that's in place. And you know what? I think as South Africans and corporates, the market is big enough, but they're going to have to start thinking about working togetherly. Even things like warehousing, um, just you know, make it easier for for this as well. Don't tell Abraham Patel. Uh, but Antti, I mean, how much of that stuff is happening? Uh, no, Bruce, I've got a totally different view to Asana. Um, we're very happy to learn from our competitors' mistakes. We do that all day, every day, and so you know, puts a smile on my face. Um, the reality, though, is you actually want to fight out a competitive advantage. Um, so, you know, and I think uh, the, good, the, the good minister would agree with me on this. Um, if you can fight out a competitive advantage, it actually forces other people to follow and become more efficient themselves. Um, you know, you go back to the warehousing piece again. We get into a stage where, you know, I can foresee in the next 12 months, we probably won't have an online DC in the country. Um, we'll probably fulfill entirely from us for the network. Um, and again, it's, it's keeping on pushing with the technology. You know, just going to the data piece, um, one of the things that we've launched recently, we've moved actually, it's, it's also fascinating how quickly some of the trends move. 
we've gone from running websites by various brands um, really to having apps for your smartphone. Um, internationally, you know, 70% of e-commerce, uh, certainly clothing e-commerce is now shopping apps. We launched a couple over the last few months. And one of the functions in it um, across the apps is you can take a photograph of Bruce the way he's dressed at the moment um, on your screen. You'll catalog that photograph against every single product we've got across all of our brands in South Africa. It'll come up with five or six different check shirts, blue blazers, um, different price points, different brands, and make suggestions based on things both in the photo and that you bought in the past. So that personalization is going to become absolutely fundamental, both in clothing um, as much as it might be in the, in the food retail space as well. If we've seen exponential growth, and I think we wrap up this afternoon, if we've seen exponential growth in online and we're seeing some very real shifts, partly driven by economics, partly driven by society, partly driven by the fact that um, we're becoming more digitally connected than ever before. If we've had this huge progress in a relatively short period of time and it's been forced upon us, are we going to see that exponential growth curve? Do we see it continue? I, I wonder. Um, and I wonder what your business looks like five years from now. Maybe, Vaughan, I mean, you guys have, have been through through hell and back. You've had been boxing with both hands tied behind your back for much of the last six months. Are there going to be fundamental shifts and things that have happened to you over the last six months that are going to determine across this African continent in particular um, the way in which your business is going to evolve? Let's put it a five-year time frame. How is it going to change? I think one of our um, learnings around e-commerce is that only about 4 or 5% of South Africans um, have bought alcohol online. So it is a, a significantly small portion. Um, however, where we have seen a great acceleration is on the business-to-business -business side. Um, so creating technologies that help our retailers optimize their revenue through algorithmic selling and, and using AI to, to uh, determine what the, the right order quantities and basket sizes should be for, for these retailers. And I think that that's an area where um, I think we can extract massive value, but also create some value for our retailers. So that, that's been a, a big shift for us. Uh, Boogie, well, from, from your perspective, uh, and I'd be interested to see whether or not you're on the same page as this, and I'm hoping Ashley just won't, won't just be polite and say, yes, she's absolutely right. Um, <laughs> the evolution of the community group business over the next five years? Look, Bruce, I think it's going to be challenging. Um, I think we're on the right track, we're on the right journey. Obviously, the acquisition of Jacked and a, a large proportion of our local manufacturing places us in a very good stead to be able to competitively uh, gain market shares continually um, in the next five years. You know, uh, we've geared up balance sheet, uh, sorry, we've uh, strengthened our balance sheet and shored it up and uh, um, there's opportunities. So, you know, while it's uh, probably uh, challenging. I think there's a lot of opportunities. And I think that uh, we are very well poised with a strong balance sheet, strong cash, free cash flow, um, and, and obviously low, large proportion of our local um, manufacturing for apparel. I mean, I think, I think we said earlier on, we manufacture at least 20-25% of our uh, apparel um, locally. We see that expanding significantly. Uh, yeah, and, and consumer behavior, we watch it, uh, I think, less and less credit and more and more cash sales. And I think uh, also authenticity, you know, customers are going to look for um, support businesses that are authentic, that um, think about the consumer and, um, and, 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 and so on. And I think TFG is quite well poised uh, for that, you know, to take advantage uh, of the opportunity there. 
that's the finance director's response from a, a look and feel perspective. Um, how do we change over the next five years? I've learned in life one is the CEO should never disagree with the CFO, and the CFO's job is to make sure the CEO money. So as long as you get those two right, so you're off to you know, you're off to the races. Um, I think what Bongiwe didn't answer was um, where, where do we see online going and, and that landscape. Um, and again, I'll probably be more than yeah, maybe I'll be proved wrong, but I doubt. Um, you know, we originally going back a year, a year or so ago, we thought we'd be five percent of online turnover, or five percent of our turnover in South Africa would be online by twenty five. Uh, conservatively, that's going to be north of ten percent. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me if it's north of fifteen percent. So I think it, I think it moves that quickly um, for all the reasons we've already discussed on the show. Once you're there, and once you're used to it, once you've got trust in the system, um, I think it, it really does ramp up exponentially. You might have a bit of a softening um, over the next month or so as people start to wander back into shopping malls. But again, it's behavioural. Um, it's just too convenient. The systems are getting too good. It's you know, it's liable to you. Very good, Evan Walker. Your crystal ball? Yeah, Bruce, as I said to you, you know, from a from a from an actual industry perspective, I think the sector's looking very interesting. You know, unfortunately the biggest single headwind we've got in South Africa at the moment is just a, the expense of our public sector wage bill, which unfortunately doesn't come down dramatically in the next three years where we're looking at a currency north of thirty to the dollar and a bond rate of twenty. So, you know, um, you know, we've got this big, big single headwind in South Africa now, and that's called the public sector wage bill, which is unsustainable, and it needs to be curtailed over the next five years. Otherwise, we haven't got a domestic economy. It's as simple as that. It's just got way out of proportion. But from an actual industry perspective, uh, as I said to you, you know, what's happening on the floor now, um, and the likes of Fashini and these retailers really have the upper hand. They need to create more and more flexibility in their businesses. Uh, we've seen the likes of Anthony and Fashini obviously reduce their lease times. Uh, you know, I wouldn't like to be a landlord in the South African market for the next five years. I think these retailers are going to be brutal, and uh, and I think they should be. You know, they had 20 years of uninterrupted growth, um, and to the extent that we see some of these prices they charge in some of these malls per square meter, I think are still horrendous. So, you know. Good luck to these guys, but I certainly hope they give the landlords a tough time. And I think it's all about flexibility in their businesses. They're doing exactly the right things. Um, it's just un- it's just unfortunately now that we need to turn to return to growth, Bruce. And we know that we talk about it on your show all the time. And we need jobs, 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 and more jobs. You know, and the ability to create those jobs is going to come about. You know, if we see this initial pain from a reduction in our public sector wage bill and an ability for this country to transform itself back to spending on roads and infrastructure, et cetera, and the corruption that you talk about so often on your show. So, you know, I think it's there, and I think the industry is moving in the, in, in, in the right way. I mean, this is – but it's probably going to take another two, three years of pain. Uh, but certainly, you know, Bruce, we look out for consolidation in industries because industries – you know, we, we didn't invest in the platinum sector for 10 years until two years ago when we thought there'd been enough pain. And it's likewise in the retail space. We're looking – and we like pain, Bruce, because the more pain these retailers go through, the, the more the more their, their longstanding shareholders will capitulate, okay, and we'll be there to buy their shares and hopefully we'll buy them at the right time when this country can transform itself. And I still am of the optimistic view that we can transform this SA economy back to growth. So I am, I'm definitely on the side and waiting and – and actually, we did take a lot of Fashini shares in their placement a little while ago. So I think we've sold them all already at 90 Rand, and they're back at 80 today. But we'll certainly be back and buying them again because we like the story. Sorry, Anthony, we also <laughs> have to make you. a profit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. 
That was a good... Uh, uh, that was a good uh, preach. Thank you very much, Evan Walker. Uh, from you, Asana Cordia, wrap it up for us, if you would, uh, with your perspective, please, as to what the sector looks like five years from now. Is it a, a short-term horror show with uh, with the with recovery coming into the future? Um, Bruce, I'm also like Evan, um, choosing to be optimistic. Um, I do think um, the one thing we take out of COVID is that um, we got a huge shock to the system. And what happens when there's a shock to the system is hopefully people wake up and realize that we have been in a very bad space for quite a while. For reasons that I think Evan went into, um, we need more jobs in different industries, in industries where it's needed. We need to bring manufacturing back to South Africa. We need to look after our own economy and our consumers' health. We need to um, make sure we understand um, the health of the consumer and be um, socially responsible in how we serve our consumers. And as APSA, we are committed to, to our clients and a big part of our clients is our retailers. And through this COVID period, we've supported them. We've seen them um, work very hard to understand how they're going to cope. And they've done that very well. And we are proud to say that we've partnered with them and we will continue to partner with South African corporates and in and the retail sector, because we do believe in South Africa and the economy and we think it will recover, but it is going to be tough. And I think next year is going to be particularly tough. Thank you very much. Isana Cordia, the Head of Consumer Goods and Services at APSA Corporate and Investment Bank. To Vaughan Crozier, the Marketing Director at SAB. Thank you very much. To Evan Walker, uh, Portfolio Manager at 361 Asset Management. To Bongiwe and Tuli, the Chief Financial Officer at the Fushini Group and Chief Executive, Anthony Thunstrom. Thanks very much, you guys, for joining us today. To those of you who've joined us for this very special Insights series with APSA Corporate and Investment Bank, thank you very much for watching. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again next time. Bye-bye. Expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. For more, visit absainsights.co.za.